Hey, I'm Kevin. Hey, I'm Johnny E. Tune into our radio show, Philly Rock Live. We play the classic hard rock and metal from the 70s and 80s. We grew up on. We play the new music those same bands are making today. And we play new music from around the world. Not to mention the great bands from our own local scene. You will not hear a mix of music like this anywhere else. If it kicks ass, we, we play, play it. Philly Rock Live. Thursday, 7 to 9 p.m. Philly time. On phillyrockradio.com. Listen online with your mobile device or even your smart speaker. And now, and now, it's time for another edition of the Sports and Metal Podcast. We talk hard-hitting sports and bone-crunching metal. Sports and Metal, because sports and metal go better together. Now here's your host, Jason Voorhees, and Aaron Savage. Oh yeah! Hello, everybody, and welcome to the final edition of the Sports and Metal podcast for the year 2020. Thank goodness for that, because I think we've all had it with 2020. I'm your host, Aaron Savage. With me, as always, my co-host and partner in crime, Mr. Jason Voorhees. Yeah, man, what's going on? What's going on, brother? I hope you had a good holiday. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Thank you, brother. I'm just glad to see 2020 go. How about you? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Probably, yeah, the, so, well, it's definitely the worst of our lifetimes. I mean, oh my goodness. I mean, one thing after the next. I mean, even personally for me, I'm not going to get into it here, but oh my gosh, like everything that can go wrong has gone wrong in 2020. It's really been Murphy's Law, man. Unbelievable. But um, yeah, so I'm excited to do a show, end of the year show. I know we got a lot to talk about. I know we're going to quickly later in the show, we're going to quickly get into our favorite albums of the year, 2020. Um, probably recap the year a bit. Um, but you know what, I, I, where I wanted to start and I'm going to plug you a little bit, I'm going to plug your blog. You did your, uh, blog for Philly rock radio this past week. And in that blog, you gave your personal list, um, for what you think the best individual seasons by a quarterback are since the year 1980. And you know what, I figured it's a great spot to plug you and a great spot to get into a little debate. <laughs> so why don't we talk about it, brother? Why don't you tell everybody about your list? What's going on? Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> You know, obviously, um, everyone that, you know, puts out lists are always, uh, you know, obviously up for debate. Uh, but, yeah, I, I, I did a list of uh, my top 15 seasons. Now, obviously, uh, it was kind of, you know, looking back and, you know, researching, you know, these uh, these different, you know, quarterbacks, I I, I pretty much came to the conclusion that obviously we're living in a different era today. Uh, And that's why uh, I had Dan Marino actually way up on my list, even though, you know, he's been surpassed uh, by, you know, number of uh, quarterbacks as far as yards and touchdowns. But uh, I think that season, uh, you know, and obviously Dan Marino is your favorite quarterback. You're obviously a diehard Miami Dolphins fan. So, you know, I'll let you talk more about it. But I I just don't think that that season gets talked about enough. Uh, and the more I was looking at it and the more I even did research today, like after, after the fact, I, I'm like, I'm like mind boggled by how, how much passing stats are juiced today. 
Well, let's start here. Let's tell the audience a little bit about your list. You had uh, Randall Cunningham's 1990 season coming in at number 15. You had Brett Favre's 1996 season coming in at number 14. And we can get into these seasons a little more as we go, but just to give you a quick rundown, yeah. you had Drew Brees' 2011 season coming in at number 13. You had Matt Ryan's 2016 season coming in at number 12. You had Cam Newton's 2015 season coming in at number 11. You had Peyton Manning's 2004 season coming in at number 10. You had Kurt Warner's 1999 season coming in at number nine. You had Aaron Rodgers' 2011 season coming in at number eight. You had Joe Montana's 1989 season coming up, coming in at number seven. You had Lamar Jackson's 2019 season coming in at number six. You had Peyton Manning's 2013 season coming in at number five. You had Pat Mahomes' 2018 season coming in at number four. You had Tom Brady's 2007 season coming in at number three. You had Dan Marino, as we were just discussing, 1984 season coming in at number two. And you ranked Steve Young's 1994 season as the greatest single season by a quarterback. Now, obviously, your list here, you factored postseason into it, so you got to factor that. And keep in mind, your list was also only post-1980. Um, that being said, why don't you tell us a little bit how you decided uh, Steve Young's 1994 season was the greatest of all time? Tell us. Well, well convince us. Well, the only reason that it, to me, that it that it was better than Dan Marino is is the fact that obviously not only did Steve Young go to the Super Bowl, he but he won that Super Bowl. And in doing so, he set a, a Super Bowl record with six touchdowns and 325 yards. Now, the yardage wasn't a, a record. But to, to, to just end the season in that way, to me, that's the reason why I got, I got you know, I had it at number one. Now, um, you know, I, I think that season a lot of times gets forgotten, too, because e- even his regular season, even though he didn't, throw for 5,000 yards. I don't think it's always about yards because also, don't forget, Steve Young was a running quarterback as well. Uh, He was probably one of the first that could do both at a very high level. And he uh, actually scored seven touchdowns on the ground that year as well, rushing. So I I think – I also believe that those, uh, you know – those 49er teams, uh, not, not the ones with under Joe Montana, but the ones with Steve Young, there was a lot more stiffer competition when they were playing. Like, you know, he, he, he was going up against Brett Farr. Like, there was a when, when Joe Montana did it, it was almost like the 49ers were just like a conglomerate. But uh, the Steve Young era, you know, it was a lot more, uh, you know, competition. And I just think that that season – realistically and i i just remember that season i was always uh a diehard you know steve young fan i mean i i love joe montana don't get me wrong but there was just something about steve young that was like different and i I think it was that dual uh you know dual threat capability that always kind of you know blew me away but i let's look at the numbers in 16 games he passed for 3969 yards so he fell short of that magic 4,000-yard number, but he did have 35 touchdown passes, 10 interceptions, ran for 293 yards. So it's not like he had a huge rushing total. He was a mobile quarterback, did score seven rushing touchdowns. QB rating was 
was the MVP. The Niners finished 13 and three that season. I mean, it's a great season, but let, let me delve into your list a little more. Uh, one thing that stands out to me, you look at your list post-1980. Let me count this. So you have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, Nine, nine of the 15 seasons are post-2000. Four, post-2004. Nine of the 15 seasons are post-2004. I mean, that's staggering to me. Uh, I get, obviously, any list is debatable, but I'm going to say this. I, for me, I, I have to say Dan Marino's is the greatest. And here's the thing. I, I hate being put in this position to have to have this conversation because right off the bat, as a Miami Dolphins fan, it's almost like I shouldn't be having this debate because like as a Dolphins fan, it's automatically going to be assumed that I'm biased or because I have a dog in the fight. I'm going to say Dan Marino. So I hate being in this conversation, but I have to, I mean, for me, I mean, I would almost argue Randall Cunningham's 1990 season ahead of that Steve Young season. See, for me, I don't, I don't put the postseason into it for me. I get, I get what you're saying. It was unbelievable what, Steve Young did in the season and then in that postseason. But when you're Dan Marino in 1984, passing for 5,084 yards, 48 touchdown passes, you had your own 108.9 passer rating, you won the MVP, blah, blah, blah. But then you faced the conglomerate Joe Montana Niners in the Super Bowl and lost. I don't think you should be faulted for facing the Niners in the Super Bowl. I don't think it negates anything that Dan Marino did in that season, Uh, his second season in the league, by the way. I mean, you look at Randall Cunningham in 1990. I mean, like to me, I don't know, just looking at how he revolutionized the game, I, I practically would rank that ahead of the Steve Young season. I'd probably be in the minority, admittedly, in doing that. But that's why these debates are able to be had. I just look at Randall Cunningham's 1990 season. Yeah, we both love it, you know. It's like he, he passed for almost 3,500 yards, 30 touchdowns, so less gaudy passing numbers than Steve Young. But 942 rush yards? For a quarterback in 1990, dude, that's insanity. That's like what we were talking about Lamar Jackson last year in 2019. What Randall Cunningham's 1990 season stands up to Lamar Jackson's 2019 season. And we were all blown away by Lamar Jackson's 2019 season of having never seen anything like that before. Like, he took what Cam Newton did in 2015 and juiced it up. You know, almost a 1,000 rush yards. Randall Cunningham did that in 1990, dude. Five, I mean, five rushing touchdowns himself. So, I mean, obviously it's debatable, but to the point, I just think if we're going to talk about greatest quarterback seasons, not only since 1980, but of all time, I, I have to go Marino. Can I drop some stats on you, Jay? Do you mind? Uh, I just – I did a little bit of research after I read your blog. That's fine. <laughs> of my own. Now, granted, I didn't have as much time as I would have liked to have really delved into this. So, what I'm, the numbers I'm about to drop are going up to the 2013 – right before the 2013 NFL season. Um, so let's just discuss up to that point, the only quarterback to ever have thrown a 4,000 yard season prior to 1979 was Joe Namath, who did it in a 14 game season. So you prorate that out to 16 games would have been about 4,500 yards. Nobody threw for 4,000 yards again from 1967 to 1979 when Dan Fouts did it, which is why I think, I, I think Dan Fouts arguably could be on your list. From 79, 80, and 81, Dan Fouts 
had three consecutive 4,000-yard seasons, and no one had ever thrown for 4,000 yards in the history of the NFL before him except Joe Namath. Then Dan Fouts had three. And then he was joined in the 1980, in the 1980 season by Brian Sipe of the Browns. So 1980 was the first time you had two 4,000-yard passers. So in the history of the NFL, going up until 1981, you had five 4,000-yard seasons. In the history of the league, and three of them were by Dan Fouts. Okay, so then if we go out to the first 19 4,000-yard seasons, five of those were thrown by Dan Marino, including the first 5,000-yard season in the aforementioned 1984 season, which I think is the greatest single season ever for a quarterback. Um, of those first 19 4,000-yard seasons, they stretched all the way up until 1992. So now we're in 1992. You still only have – 19 4,000 yard seasons in the history of the NFL, five of which were by Dan Marino, three of which were by Dan Fouts. So if you take Marino and Fouts out of there, you have 11 total 4,000 yard seasons. And now we're in 1992. We're practically post Joe Montana's career at this point. You know, he was, obviously he was still there, but he was getting into his twilight years when he was eventually a chief. Um, but you go, you know where I'm going with this. Uh, yeah. Talking about Montana being the greatest of all time. I mean, He's not even on the list. Um, so here we go. So now up, now we're going to, like I said, I'm talking up to 2013 where I was able to do my research, right? so although I had time to really do. There were 110 total 4,000-yard seasons going into that 2013 season. You ready for this? 91 of them were between 1993 and 2013. So in the 20-year period post-1992 going into the 2013 season, 91 of the 110 4,000-yard seasons took place in those 20 years. What does that tell you? It's insanity how much juiced offense has – how much the, the, the offense in the NFL has been juiced by rule changes that have benefited the passing game and benefited the offense. Um, you can't even touch a receiver now without a flag being thrown. And like I said, these stats are only going up to the 2013 season. I, I'd have to do more research. How many – there's probably been another 100 4,000-yard seasons between 2013 and today. Well – uh, I'm going to drop – look, hold on. I'm going to just uh, – while I had it here in front of me. Well, you tell me. What were you going to well, say? Well, I could kind of add to where you're going with this uh, because I, I, I did – like I said, I just did some before the show. And I'll, I'll kind of even one better that. So you, you spoke about the 4,000-yard passing seasons, okay? Mm-hmm. Well, all time in the history of the NFL, there have only been 12 – 5,000 yard seasons. Okay. Yep. That's where I was about to get okay. to. Yep. You're right. 11 of those 12 were 2008 to present. That's where the I was only going. Only yeah. one prior was Marino in 84, which, which just shows you even more about how good that season was by Marino. And I'll even one better that. When Marino threw for 5,084 yards in 1984, the next closest quarterback in yardage was Phil Sims coming in at 4,044, which is basically 1,000 yep. yards less. You look today. And that was still when we had, when we're still in the original period of like oh, your first exactly. 15, 4,000 yards. Exactly. Yep. And also. Up until 84, and you already kind of pretty much touched on it, but there were only six total 4,000-yard seasons ever 
up until 1984 in the history of the NFL. Yeah, and three and of three them were fouls, fouls, and then Marino. And, came. of course, yep. Marino had the four and then the one 5,000 yards. So, I yep. agree. Like, honestly, like, and I guess maybe, maybe I should have just had Marino first. But, once again, I – considered all things considered and you did i just i just feel like i and this has been my argument from day one i just feel like it's unfair to fault a guy based on a what team he's on i mean trent dilfer for example won a super bowl is trent dilfer better than dan marino so that's the argument i make and then it's not like dan marino had a cakewalk in the super bowl he played the joe montana dynasty in the super bowl that season dude think about it it's not like dan marino should be faulted for that and marino was only in his second year by that point, Joe Montana was a seasoned veteran legend. The legend of Joe Montana had already been established. Dan Marino was the new guy. You know, I mean, he, look what he was up against and the, and the pressure that was on him after the season he had just had. But it, back to your point, Jay. You pointed out that we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eleven five thousand yard seasons post from 2008 to today. Correct. Correct. Three of them were in 2011. And I think Eli Manning just missed 5,000 by less than 100 yards. Eli Manning. When would anybody put Eli Manning up against Dan Marino? As that's how my point being is, you have everybody throwing 4,500 to 5,000 well, yards, even the guys that aren't reaching the 5,000 well, mile, yard miles. I have a list. Uh, you know, I'll I'll go down it quickly. Now, of the 5,000 yard seasons, Manning has won. Peyton Manning. Brady has won. Roethlisberger has won. Mahomes has won. Marino has won. Stafford has won. And then, of course, Jameis Winston, which I think. Think about it. And Jameis Winston threw 30 interceptions in his. And that was just last year in 2019. And and that's crazy. He's kind of like the outlier. But Breeze with five, I mean, that's pretty, that is amazing. I, I, I do have to say, as much as you would say. Here's the thing. I'm not knocking Drew Brees. The guy's a great no. quarterback in his era. But I just don't think it's as ma- as amazing no. as you're saying no, but, it is. But, okay, but then, it's amazing that, the, that it's become that easy to well, do it. Well, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So then let's go to the, the 4,000-yard seasons real quick. Brees has seven of those. That's not including the five 5,000 yards. Brady yep. has 11. And Peyton Manning Peyton has Manning 14. Has 13, well, 14 if you count the five. 14. <laughs> Roethlisberger has five. Marino had five. Yeah. So I think, uh, like, like I said, man, I, I'm not. You're not going to get an argument with me because I have Marino second. So could Marino could very well be number one if if you want me to take out the, you know, the including the playoffs. Okay, and and, and you're right. But I think the bigger I just have trouble well, ranking these post well, two thousand five seasons. Well, I do think I just the bigger part of the of the equation is that I think that realistically we need to educate and or more people need to realize that Dan Marino is a lot better now than he's still getting than he's getting credit for now. That's a thing. When we were kids, there was no question. When we were kids, everybody knew Dan Marino was the goat. I feel like it was either Marino or Montana because you either were just on the Montana bandwagon because of the five rings or you were just on the Marino bandwagon because of the stats. But the point is, it just feels like any argument when we, when we were kids ended with Joe Montana and Dan Reno, and you might have had a little John Elway thrown in. 
But I just don't. To me, even always, not even on the level. I mean, I just I can't say he is. I just I've been, I've never had anything but great things to say about John Elway. Great player. But I, I mean, I to me, it's like when you talk about Marino in his prime, I wouldn't even put him on the level. The only, and the only reason to me Montana can even be mentioned in that discussion is because of the Super Bowls. What Marino did was like nothing anybody else did at that time. You look at the numbers Marino put up. It was very similar to like the numbers Babe Ruth put up when he first started putting up the numbers he was putting up. You go back to those early days when the dead ball era of MLB was ending and we were getting into the live ball era. Babe Ruth was hitting more home runs by himself than entire franchises. Babe Ruth was hitting more home runs than entire teams. That's kind of what Dan Marino did in 1984. You know, think about it. The numbers were just staggering. There was nobody close. And the 48 touchdowns held until, what was what was it, 2011 when Man, Man, Peyton Manning broke that? I'd have 2004. To look. But still. Well, it was, the, it was the 2004 season. It was one of those ones. But, yeah, the 2004. But the bottom line is you're talking a record that held up for those 20 years. And 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 look at and it was just like knocked out year after year subsequent to Peyton Manning breaking I, it. You know, I mean, Tom Brady, the guy that you thought was a game manager. And I'm it. not gonna, <laughs> you know. I, and honestly, Aaron, it, uh, I think it's gonna go even to another level. I think five thousand yards will soon be the new four thousand yards because it, it may I well think be already. You're gonna see it because I think obviously Mahomes just hit five thousand. But that was in his second year, and I just I just see it coming with with the way that these quarterbacks are just coming out. It just seems like they're being groomed to just not only are the passing stats juiced, it just seems like these offenses have become more so. Offenses in general are juiced, even the running games, because obviously a lot of these quarterbacks are running. Now, obviously, these the athletes today are better than they've ever been, so that's a whole different conversation we could have. I'm not knocking today's athlete. Athletes today have more access to nutrition, training, education, and with the money that they make, they don't have to have jobs in the offseason. So these guys are like well-oiled machines that train all year and eat specialized diets and whatever, supplements, whatever, and personal trainers, massage, this, that, and the other thing. Whereas guys smoked 30 years ago that were athletes, you know? Keith Hernandez used to smoke in the dugout for the Mets. I mean, it's like all sports have changed. That's, that's a whole other conversation, but you're still up against your peers. And what we can say is, in today's game, every rule favors the offense. You can't touch a, a franchise quarterback. Tom Brady, you couldn't touch the guy without a flag being thrown. And you can't even – dude, let's take this past week's game, Saturday night's game with the Dolphins and uh, Raiders. Once again, I'm a Dolphin fan, so obviously I watched the game and the but I could bring up any other game. It's not because I'm a Dolphin fan that I bring it up. It just happens to be a game I watched and I saw the play. But the pass interference call late in the game, when Derek Carr aired it out to Algalor, it ended up being a 46-yard penalty on the Dolphins, which is what gave the 49ers the lead where they ran the clock down to 19 seconds before kicking the field goal. You mean the Raiders. That play, the, the, the Raiders, that's what I said, you right? You said 49 that's okay. You were thinking about my Yeah, exactly. So the Raiders, they threw the 40, Derek Carr threw the 49-yard bomb, flag, 46-yard bomb to Algalore, flag was called. You look at the replay over and over. Dude, they didn't touch him. They, Byron Jones' hand may have, like, glazed Algalore's back in the process of just running toward the play. Dude, pass interference should be, like, hooking the guy's arm, grabbing him. I mean, when did we, de- start, when did we decide that pass interference meant breathing on a guy? But that's today's NFL. 
That's today's NFL, Jay. It's insane. It could be any game. It's it's a farce and it's a joke. And the thing that pisses me off, not just the, the matter of that the numbers are juiced and that we can't recognize players of past eras and compare them to today's era because the kids of today's generation have no clue when they just see this. But it also just makes the games not as enjoyable. Who wants to watch a game's be decided by referees. I want to watch play football players play football. I want to watch baseball players play baseball, whatever it is. I don't want to see the officiating determining outcomes of games. I just don't. You know, it, it, it's one of the reasons I don't even like all the use of instant replay in sports. Not because, It's not that I don't want the calls to be right, but it's I, I also like the human error in the game, like in all sports. Stop calling so many fucking penalties. Let the players play. And when you do make a call... I mean, I'm not saying instant replay shouldn't be. It, it, maybe it's more of a baseball thing for me, but it, it's just overdone. I mean, everything is is beat to death. Like, what's a catch anymore? You know what I mean? What, what's a what's a sack anymore? What's a tackle? You don't even know if you could breathe on a guy. A flag is going to be thrown. But everything that's happening is favoring the offense. It's, seriously, dude, it's crazy. It is absolutely crazy. It's the pussification of sports. You're, I mean. <sighs> I, I love your rants because you're you're 100 percent on point. And, 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 and speaking <laughs> speaking of the Dolphins, I I really, you know, we don't get a lot of time, so I, I really, you know, I'm curious. Like I'm I'm excited for you. Like, what's your thoughts, man? I I really like. I I did. I watched the other night. I I watched the game, and you know, obviously, you know, I'm a diehard Eagles fan, and I, I got to tell you, our franchises are going in two opposite directions i mean it, it couldn't be more opposite right now let's face it but you know i i, I want i want to get your thoughts on, on your dolphins because i i really well i'm excited dude obviously uh, you know we talked about tua a couple weeks ago on the show and i told you i wasn't sure if i was 100 percent sold on tua i said it then i'm because i'm honest i still say it today but i also acknowledge the guy's a rookie you know, I, like two years ago, I thought Lamar Jackson sucked when he came up, when they first benched Flacco. I just like, I'm not impressed because all he did is run and he didn't throw the ball at all. And the offense was going nowhere the first year with Lamar Jackson with the Ravens. And then last year he was a monster. So, you know, I reserve time to make judgment. You know, guys got to learn the system, learn the league. You know, big thing with Tua is he played with Alabama where it's like a juggernaut and his receivers are always open. And you keep hearing commentators talk about it. And I agree. I think Tua still hasn't learned what NFL open is. You know, guys in Alabama were just wide open because they were superior to everybody they were playing. Whereas in the NFL, the playing field's a lot more level. So a guy may not look open compared to how he looked in Alabama, but in the NFL, he's open. So, I mean, I think Tua's uh, work in progress. Um, but that being said, I'm excited, dude. I'm excited. I think, like I said, I mean, as far as Tua goes, he had no preseason. He's, he missed almost a year with the injury. There was The NFL had no preseason because of COVID. So it's just a weird year. It's a weird, weird year. And he's coming off an injury. So it's a learning experience. I mean, but even he's had very bright moments. He had that great game against Arizona where they came back and won. He's had a couple 300-yard passing games. He's had some duds like he did this past week against the Raiders. But that's that's the beauty of the Dolphins. They're a team. Like you said, it's not about one guy. It kind of goes back to why I think Marino's year was the best. I think it's, it's a team sport. I can't fault a guy because he didn't win a Super Bowl. So same here. The Dolphins have a very good defense. You know, statistically top in the league right now. Definitely a top three defense. Uh, to me, they have the best kicker in the league. I mean, Jason Sanders is money. Every time late in the game, I feel confident if we just get within 50 yards, even 55 yards, 
this guy's going to kick a field goal. I not miss. I just I haven't felt like that in a long time. Um, I love Flores. He's an unbelievable coach. So I have confidence in everything he does. Like this past weekend, obviously, they benched Tua in the fourth quarter to bring in Fitzpatrick. Dude, it lit a spark. It lit a spark. A lot of people like are hesitant when things like that happen, but I don't because the coaching in Miami is so good. I don't think – I think all the players are – well aware of what's going on. Nobody feels like they're being slighted. It's all for the team to win. It's all in everybody's best interest. So just as much as it was in the best interest of the Miami Dolphins to win that game, to make the change when they did and put Fitzpatrick in for the last 10 minutes of the fourth quarter, it was also a learning experience for Tua. So I think it was in his best interest as well. You know, Tua was clearly struggling in that game for the first three and a half quarters. Fitzpatrick came in and he started making throws that Tua wasn't making. So to me, the only thing that can happen from that is positive. Two is going to watch and see, wow, he's making these throws I wasn't making. And I know I can make these throws. And then you saw Fitzpatrick was there on the sideline after, you know, the offense came off the field and, you know, was into his ear and saying, you know, this is the throws I'm making. These are why I'm making these throws. And back to the whole in the NFL, this is open thing. And so I think it just benefited everybody. Dolphins pulled the game out, learning experience for Tua. Fitzpatrick got a shining moment again, made that unbelievable no-look pass on the face mask put him in field goal range with the 15 yards tacked on for the penalty. Dude, the Dolphins week in and week out are showing that they're a team to be reckoned with. They, they don't lose, dude. They start at one and three and they're nine and two since, you know, and they win every which way, you know, whether it's a great game from Tua, good game from, from, from Fitzpatrick and relief, the defense steps up, makes some turnovers, big plays, big kicks all across the board, you know, next man up mentality, lots of injuries. I've not been this excited in a long time, Jay. If they make the playoffs and get eliminated in the first round, I'm still going to be super excited. Even if they somehow didn't make the playoffs, which would be difficult, this, they, this final week they'd have to lose and three other teams would have to all win. I'm not saying that couldn't happen, but chance, the chances are in Miami's favor to make it. But even if they didn't, it's a successful season. They have a shitload of draft picks. Right now, with the way Houston's playing, Dolphins are set up to have a top five pick in the first round because they have uh, – the, the Texans uh, first round pick from the Laramie Tunsil trade. So, I mean, they're, lo- they're loaded with picks. The, the, the future is bright, dude. I couldn't be more excited, man. I couldn't be more excited. Well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, honestly, I'm excited for you because I know, you know, you're my best friend and I know like, you know, when my teams win, you're excited for me and, and just the same. Oh, definitely. Dude. I, I was so hard. For the trust me. I, years yeah, ago. Yep. Now, I, now, as I said, our teams are going in, you know, different directions. So, uh, you know, I got to go on a little rant here if, if, if I if I don't mind, if you don't mind. <laughs> go for uh, it. Yeah, so I'm at the point now where, you know, I mean, I've said it numerous times to you. I've said it numerous times on this show. Howie Roseman is the main issue with the Eagles, the GM. But the problem is, is that the owner, Jeff Lurie, uh, Howie Roseman is like his adopted son. So I have to be a realist. As I told you before, I'm a diehard fan, but I'm also a realist. The realist part of me says there's no way that the Eagles are going to get rid of Howie Roseman. So knowing that I could sit here and bitch till I'm blue in the face, they're not getting rid of Howie Roseman. So I know that, but I will say this. They damn better. Well, make some changes. Because this team has gone to total shit. Okay? <laughs> and you know what? It's almost like one of those moments where it's like a watershed moment. Because, you know, 
it's almost like we sold our soul to win one Super Bowl. Because it was, you know, we were we were a town starving and dying for one Super Bowl because we never won. And we won in 2017, but now it's like almost like this is the punishment. Because if you look at like years prior, like, and I'm talking about Andy Reid years, the Eagles, they might not have won the Super Bowl, but they were good every year. Yeah, I agree. And if you look at since that Super Bowl, they've they've gone in succession one worse each year. So the year after they won the Super Bowl, they only made it to the divisional round and they lost. And then last year, they only made it to the wild card and they lost. And now this year, they're almost if Houston wins and the Eagles lose, the Eagles are going to have a top four pick. That's how bad they are. So my point is, is we are going backwards. Okay. I already, we've, we've already talked about it. I think I'm a, listen, I love Carson Wentz, but I don't think he will succeed in Philly. So if I were the Eagles and I don't know what they're going to do, because I can tell you this much, that's going to be the number one story in the off season. Over anybody. Last year it was Tom Brady because, you know, obviously Tom Brady is Tom Brady. But this year, the number one story in the offseason will be Carson Wentz. Because I'm telling you right now. Oh, it's, it's definitely going to be a big there story. There are teams definitely. out there that, that need a quarterback. And I'm telling you, I already told you my opinion. I think, I think the Patriots would just love to have Carson Wentz. I totally agree, dude. I think he could step in there and they would try to revitalize his career. But I almost fear for Wentz in that circumstance because they have no weapons either. you know what? (laughs) Listen, man, but this is more about the Eagles than Wentz. But I'm just giving you, you know, my opinion on Wentz. I think they got to move on from him. So my point is, is A, they got to make a decision, obviously, with the quarterback position. They cannot, they cannot, I repeat, cannot go into next year with both of them playing for competition. I do not believe in that because either way, one of them is going to struggle. If, if, if Jalen Hurts wins the job and Carson Wentz is his backup, he's going to be looking over his shoulder. It's not the right situation. The Eagles have created this mess themselves by drafting Jalen Hurts, and now they have to get out of it. So my point is, is they got to move on from one of them. Now, if it's the money thing and they think that they can revitalize Wentz, I don't think they can. But if they do go that route, then – you know, maybe they trade Hurts. I don't know. But my point is they have to make a decision at quarterback. And I hate to say it, man, but Doug Peterson's got to go. And, yeah, it's, and it's, it's, a, it's tough to say it after I, he's won a Super Bowl, but everybody's I'm time comes, you, man, man. This team is not responding to him. And then, uh, obviously, I'm sure you probably didn't hear the press comments because you, you, you don't, you know, you're not around here, so you don't listen. But – in the press conference yesterday, he blamed injuries. Now listen, and he blamed COVID to a certain extent. Listen, I'm not sitting here and saying that the Eagles have not had a lot of injuries. They have. First, it's not an excuse. It's not. It's not, Aaron. I agree because injuries are part of the NFL. 2017, you know? when they won the Super Bowl, they had more key injuries than they have this year. And they won a Super Bowl. So I don't want to hear 
about the damn injuries, okay? And that was a disgrace for me to listen to my head coach going, now, obviously, he's, at this point, I think he's just pining for his job because I I don't think he even realizes what he's doing or what he's saying. But to use that as an excuse to me as a fan is an absolute slap in the face, okay? Because this guy has been nothing but a joke this year as far as coaching this team. The Eagles, they know the situation. They knew that Wentz was struggling. And yet, Doug Peterson as the coach, you would think that he would say, you know what? I have Miles Sanders as my running back. Miles Sanders is a damn good running back. He might not be in the top five, but I'm telling you, man, he's got a lot of talent. Do you know how many times they ran the ball in the second half? Four. Honestly, I Four. Didn't I wasn't watching it yet. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> Come on, man. Dude, I agree, dude. So, I agree. I mean, I, I, back to the injuries. I mean, half the guys that have been injured are junk anyway, past their prime this guys. That's my point. I mean, Deshaun Jackson, yeah, he made a big, great play the other day, and then he's hurt again. Yeah, he's hurt. I mean, you, you built your roster around guys that are past their prime. He got hurt flipping into the end zone. Dude, you, but even beyond that, he's going to get hurt anyway. Know, it's all it's he does. There's so many walks out of bed and gets hurt. Team... But, I mean, Alshon Jeffrey's another guy, dude. It's like, why don't you just sign Brandon Marshall? He's been retired for two years. He'd fit right in. The team <laughs> I mean, really? is an absolute joke right now, and it's in disarray. So, like I said, Peterson's got to go. I already said Howie's not going to go, but I do believe that they have John Dorsey on their payroll right now, and John Dorsey actually was responsible for drafting guys like Pat Mahomes, um, Tyreek Hill, Travis Kelsey, Kareem Hunt. Yeah. Um, Quite, quite a few other guys. I mean, he's been he's been in a couple franchises and, and done well in the drafts. So what I would like to see is have him kind of go into the draft and be the draft personnel guy. If they are going to keep Howie and then put Howie down the uh, hallway where he was when Chip was here and uh, let him do the contracts. Because I'm just I, – I, I, I'm just – I'm at the point now where it's like enough is enough, man. I want to be a winner again. Hey, speaking of Chip Kelly, where the hell is Chip Kelly these days? He's back in college. Yeah, is he coaching? Yeah, I'm not sure. I saw him sure. uh, last week. He was in in a bowl game. I, I, yeah, I, I can't remember where he's at. But anyway, why don't we switch gears really quick, dude? How about the San Diego Padres? Oh. Dude, it's like all of a sudden they're like the Yankees. <laughs> oh, my goodness. They got you, Darvish. Dude, they're making amazing trades. They they've given up nothing. They got Blake Snell, and they still got all their from um, yeah, their top four from Tampa. Uh, they got the Japanese guy. Yeah, they maintain their top four prospects. Dude, Steve Cohen, you just bought the Mets. Where are you, bro? Where are you? How do how did the Mets not get Blake I Snell? I saw that meme. Come on, now. I saw the meme. They're making fun of Steve Cohen. Oh man, dude, I'm making fun of Steve Cohen. What is he doing? <laughs> You just bought this team. You can get Blake Smell for a cup of coffee. You get this yeah, but guy. but at least you signed somebody. Oh. The Phillies haven't signed anybody. I know. I'm just <laughs> venting. I'm just like, I can't believe the Padres. Gee whiz. Well, I, you know, geez. I'll tell you what, man. The Padres, they're going all in now. They, I mean, yeah. once they signed Manny Machado, I knew that they, they meant business. And then, you know, obviously to already have Fernando Tatis Jr., who's probably one of the top three exciting players to watch right now. I, I mean, I, I love Mookie Betts, and I love Mike Trout. But 
I also think shortstop is a, a premium position, and to have a guy like that at shortstop, I mean, he's like the next A-Rod, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, well, as we wind down 2020, and, uh, you know, thinking of sports and baseball in particular, now football starting to wind down. Obviously, we know what we're getting with the NFL the rest of the year. Playoffs are here. We got through the season. Um, we know where we are. I, I'm just praying that as we go into 2021, we can get a regular baseball season. I would love to see fans back in the ballpark. I was, man. I was just going to say, I yeah. want to come up there and, and go with you and your boy to, you know, a, a Mets-Phillies game. At, at Definitely, but I'm just hoping we can do it. You know, We're, this is our end-of-year show. This is my biggest thing I want to say for the end of the year. I'm hoping in 2021 we could be at a baseball game in the ballpark. I'm with you. I'm praying. I'm crossing my fingers, dude. What do you think? You think it's going to happen? I I think it's probably a thirty percent chance, and I I hate to say here's what's it. nuts. Here's what's nuts. How fast this year has gone by because of COVID. This year is like a blur, dude. It was literally feels like yesterday. I was at my local YMCA. I was running the track, um, and I was on my phone while I was on the track, and I bought Mets. I think it was the second game of the season. It was Pete, Pete Alonso bobblehead day. Bought those tickets, and I, it was like a week before. Oh no, it was. I'm exaggerating. It was probably two, two and a half weeks, three weeks before opening day. I forget when COVID hit and they, they shut down spring it training. March. It was a couple of weeks before opening day. Yeah, I know. I know it was March. I just can't remember how far along into spring training when they stopped playing, they shut it down. It was a couple of weeks before opening day. Because if you recall, opening day was supposed to be early this past season. It was like at the end of March. Yeah. So it was like maybe mid-March. So it was maybe two, two and a half weeks before the opener. I got that, the tickets. I mean, that's how close it was to opening day, and I wasn't even thinking that COVID was going to shut anything down. That's how fast it happened. Shut down, didn't go to the game, never got my refund. It was too much hoopla to go through to get the refund. I just gave up. Um, and it just feels like here we are. It's almost a year later. 2020 is at I the mean, end. January's Hold on, Jake. January's a couple days away, which means we're almost back to March. So here we are. We've gone almost full circle. We're going into 2021, and, like, I don't know. I mean, I know the vaccine is starting to get distributed, but what has changed? I'm just scared. I just want to have a baseball season. I mean, my point is it was two weeks before opening day last year. I was, I had my tickets for the game. I was ready to go. I was pumped up. Me and Gavin, my son were going. I was so excited. And within days that all happened out of the blue. And here we are almost a year later. It, it's like a blur, dude. It's like, it's almost like you were in an accident and you went into a coma and then somebody just woke you up and you're like, holy shit. <laughs> like it's like it never happened. Well, the way this year is, well, right? I can't. I mean, you know, New Year's is 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 Friday. Just That's put fair. in perspective, Kobe Bryant died last January. Dude, another thing. Uh, I, I, Dude, another thing, and honestly, because of COVID, I almost I forgot just about remembered it. that though. That was in January. It was like yeah. January sixteenth. I'm, I'm. It might be the twentieth. I, I don't know the date. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was January, the beginning of 2020, yeah. And that's, mm-hmm. a ye- dude, a year. <laughs> yeah, and that was, like, all the news at the time. And it's like, I, I, I mean, I remember we went down to Disney around the time of Kobe's death. And uh, the Kobe death was all the news. And you were just starting to hear about the coronavirus a little bit because that, that video was circulating of that girl eating the bat soup. Yeah. Which at, now we don't even think that's what caused it. But at the time, you know, when rumors are rampant, everybody thought that that's what started. But even then, it wasn't like something that we were necessarily publicly 
aware of in this country that it was going to come here and that we were going to get shut down. I had a customer I, in my chimney sweep business. One of my employees was at her house. It was probably end of January, maybe mid-February. And uh, we did a chimney sweep for her. And she was telling my guys, oh, within two weeks, you know, the government's going to shut down. We're not going to be able to leave our homes. Everything's going to be locked down. It's going to be, you know, everybody's going to be dying, blah, blah, blah. And we thought she was cuckoo. We literally thought she was nuts. It was like she was from that movie Conspiracy Theory with Mel Gibson. I don't know if you've ever seen that. <clears throat> but that's what it seemed like hearing her say that. And within two weeks, it was like she was Nostradamus. Everything she said happened. Yeah, it's... It's crazy, bro. 2020 has been a fucking nightmare. So here we are, back to my original point. I'm just praying with spring training, football's winding down. When that Super Bowl hits, I'm in baseball mode. Obviously, I'm praying my Dolphins can win a Super Bowl. Oh, that'd be great, but... Neither here nor there. Then we get baseball season. Spring training's, uh, you know, a couple weeks after the Super Bowl. I'm just wondering, if is 2021 going to get the train back on the tracks to normalcy? We can actually go to events. And concerts. Concerts. You know, the Motley Crue, Def Leppard, uh, Poison Tour. The stadium tour. We're going to be able to go to that. You know, the Guns N' Roses so Tour. Upset. That's been rescheduled. Yeah, we had, I mean, is it all going to happen? We had, we had, like, second row to Guns N' Roses. Yeah, dude. Oh my God! All these concerts—it's like I just want to—I just want things back. Or is it going to happen? Is it going to happen? Uh, I mean, I, time will tell. I, time will I tell. I honestly <laughs> can't give you an answer because I am so like—I don't know. Because I would have told you eight months ago that we'd be better by now, and and we're still not. It's getting worse. It's crazy. It's a—it's crazy. I mean, this—it's just. Here's my concern. My concern is I don't know what the end game is because here's the thing. You have this huge percentage of the population that's not going to get the vaccine. So if they're not getting the vaccine, then and we have the vaccine, I just don't know where we're going. What is the end game that determines we can open? Yeah, I, because like they're, they're saying, eighty percent of the population has to get the vaccine. We, we achieve herd immunity. Blah blah blah. I'm I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I'll be I first in line to get say, a vaccine. Like, I don't care. I don't understand. But, but my point is, I don't speak for the people that aren't going to get it. And if, 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 if only 60% or even 50% of the population gets this vaccine, what are we doing? Are we ever going to open? But these anti-vaxxers are out of their minds. Like 90% of them are these conspiracy theorists that think that the government's going to control you because of a vaccine. Yeah, when meanwhile, every day when you have your cell phone, you're being tracked. I mean, these people are You're idiots. right about that. Like, you're right about that. I don't want to get into that on our right. show. Well, I, I'm not saying I disagree with you. I just don't want to get into all of that on our show because that's not what our show's about but my point being is those people exist or uh, my point is if only 50 percent of people get vaccinated for whatever the reason is where are we going what is the end game is this the new normal forever at some point we just gotta open but that's that's that that's my end of a uh, 2020 rant and hope but um <laughs> before we end the show jay i know we were gonna just get into one last thing to end 2020, we wanted to talk about our personal favorite hard rock and heavy metal albums that were released this year. So why don't we do it? Why don't sounds we do like, it? Sounds awesome. Why don't you start us off? All right. Well, as you know, I already did a list. Uh, I, I do a list every year, actually, for Philly Rock Radio. Um, my personal favorite album of 2020, hard rock and metal, was the album by Armored Saint, Punching the Sky. 
Yep. Um, I, I mean, we already talked about it, and I just, to me, it's just a kick-ass heavy metal record. It's a must-listen for anybody that loves metal, whether you like classic, or, you know, 80s-style metal, or even, you know, if you're a John Bush fan from Anthrax, you'll love it. I, I just, hands down, my favorite album. How about you? Well, I'm going to give you my top three, if that's okay. That's fine. All right. So my top three albums of 2020. My, I'm going to start with my third one. It's going to be uh, We Are Chaos, Manson's new record. Um, we talked about the record on the show before. He uh, did it with Shooter Jennings. It's just a great record. It's 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 probably the best Manson album in at least a decade. I mean, great songwriting. It's a lot of it has that like kind of mechanical animals vibe to it as far as the tempo and the pacing of the songs and vocally. But it's almost it's, it's, it's but at, at the same time it's a different sound for Manson. It has a little country tinge to it. Just an excellent record. So that's my third favorite. My second favorite record is going to be Ozzy's Ordinary Man. Um, I just think it's a great record produced with Andrew Watt. Andrew Watt played guitar on it. Um, if it if it does end up being Ozzy's last record, I think it's a great send off. You know, the song "Ordinary Man" is a real tribute to Ozzy himself. You know, um, it's got the, the, the duet with Elton John on there. Uh, it's a very re- reflective album. You know, "Under the Graveyard" is very reflective um, of Ozzy's past. We talked about the video on this show before the video depicts him, you know, when he was at rock bottom after getting fired from Sabbath and uh, Sharon came in there and saved him, but it's just a great record. I mean, it's to me, it's the best Ozzy album since osmosis because I haven't really loved the Ozzy records since osmosis. Um, down to earth was okay. Had a couple of highlights, black rain, same thing, but uh, you know, and I didn't really care for the scream record with uh, Gus G a couple tunes. I really liked on it. Like, um, what is it? Life Won't Wait. I liked a lot, but forgettable to me. This album actually had some songs that I, I would put in any Ozzy playlist. So I, I think it's a, Under the Graveyard, Ordinary Man. Those two in particular come to mind. But it's just a very good record. Um, but my favorite album of the year is going to be ACDC's Power Up, Jay. I just think it's a throwback ACDC record. It sounds like it could have came out in the mid-80s. The production... Vocally, Brian Johnson sounds as good as ever, which is a shock because he had to, you know, leave the rocker bus tour with the hearing impediment. And, you know, Axel filled in on that tour and it seemed like ACDC was done. Cliff Williams retired subsequent to the tour, basically left Angus Young as the last man standing. You know, Phil Rudd was facing charges in Australia for attempted murder. So, but I mean, the band's back, dude. You got Cliff Williams back on bass. You got Phil Rudd back on the drums. Angus is obviously Angus. Uh, Brian Johnson's back on the Vox and replacing the late Malcolm Young as their nephew, Stevie Young, who also played on the Rocker Bust record. And almost all the riffs on the song on the album were written with by Angus and Malcolm Young. I mean, most of the riffs, most of the song ideas and songs themselves on the on the um, power up record were from sessions, mostly from the Black Ice sessions back in 2008. So it's just it has the ghost of Malcolm is present on this record. Uh, the late Mal- the late great Malcolm Young. His ghost is present on the record, you know. Um, it's just it's just top to bottom, top to bottom, excellent record. So my favorite record of the year, ACDC Power Up. Check it out. Brian Johnson's voice, better than it's ever been, you know. So that's my top three records for 2020, Jay. Yeah, 
And, and so. if if you don't mind, I, I mean, two of them were in my top five. So cool, uh, awesome, brother. Yeah, and I, you know what? I I didn't I didn't mention it, but uh, Ellison's album on uh, you know what? I could put that in. I could easily have that up there too. No me. cover is no yeah, cover. Oh, that, yep, Ellison's right. That that was in my top five as well, and I think I I, I really wanted to mention that one. Um, you know, now that I think about it, that deserves mention. I'm with you, and I, that is my list you, too. I could that's that's my fourth if it's not. Yeah, my top and three. and we both love it. I mean, and it, love it, love it. You know, and it hit every style. You know, and that that's what I like. Yeah, about it. it was Dead Boys cover, Billy Idol cover. You know, he covered Motorhead. I mean, yeah. He covered all fight. I mean, he covered nail to the gun. I mean, yeah, I, definitely. I, I mean, I was just excited because you know, obviously, uh, you know, I shared that that list, and uh, David Ellison actually uh, retweeted it, so I, I thought that was cool. Yeah, that was awesome. <laughs> that was very cool. Shout out, Dave Ellison. If you're listening. Thank you for sharing uh, Jay's tweet, and uh, we hope you're listening to the show, and hopefully, you could be a guest on the oh. show one of these days. <laughs> we <laughs> great, definitely man. love that. Yeah, like, yeah. One of Jay's idols and definitely one of mine, too. So, Dave, if you're listening, we want you on the Sports and Metal podcast. <laughs> so, anyway, Jay, it's it's been a great year, dude. I'm so glad we started this show. It was the first year of Sports and Metal. Hopefully many, many years to come. Um, and hopefully, you know, we expand the product. Yeah, obviously, we have the Facebook page, the Twitter page, the podcast. You know, Jay does his blog for Philly Rock. You know, it's just the beginning. I hope we can expand the product, expand the brand, keep building the brand. And, you know, we hope we can keep getting more and more listeners. We hope you guys enjoy listening to the show. We love bringing it to you. Um, You know, and reach out to us if you guys have any ideas out there. So, dude, Jay, I mean, 2020 is a wrap, bro. That's it. It is, man. It's it. It's a wrap. (laughs) So, listen, man, I love you, dude. Happy New Year, Jay. Happy and healthy, brother. Happy and healthy New Year. Yeah, thank you, brother. Happy and healthy to all the listeners out there. Um, We'll look forward to you know being talking to you guys again about sports and metal throughout the twenty twenty one year. Look forward to it, Bryce Jay. So, rock and roll, everybody. Rock on. That's a wrap. Coming up, season two and twenty. And that's our show. Tune in next time for more sports and metal. With Jason Voorhees and Aaron Savage. Got something to say? Hit us up at sportsandmetal0423 at yahoo.com or on Twitter at sportsandmetal.